I don't just teach your child reading and math and English and social studies. I teach them that they are a person and they are a good person and that they have a lot of potential. I feel that as an educator, that is our job. We are not just working with them for them to get through the year that we have them or the two years that we have them. We truly are preparing them for life. Hello and welcome to Mighty Talks Podcast. I'm Leslie and here at Mighty Talks, we're dedicated to providing an outlet, support system, resources, and education to all those suffering from some sort of prolonged physical or emotional pain. Mighty Talks will allow you to bring power back to your life by optimizing overall health and wellness. We are here to live our best life together. No more excuses, no more hiding, and no more suffering. We're here to finally take control, advocate, and allow you to achieve your greatest desires. So join along in conversation, and if you like what you hear, please hit the like and follow button. Shelly Kino is a vibrant, certified special education teacher, and she has been involved in education for over 25 years. She's attended several Wright's Law conferences, completed the Master IEP Coach Mentorship, and she's a member of the Master IEP Coach Network. She's worked and provided education in both the United States and in England, And during her career, she's developed her own behavior modification system that has worked with hundreds of students. She partners with parents, caregivers, and school districts to find common ground to enhance the education of children with special needs. And she does this by providing an understanding of special education in the IEP document and process. She is a wife, mother to an amazing daughter, and a fully trained human to a chihuahua. She is a true light for our education system, and I am so happy to have her here today. So please allow me to again welcome Shelly Kino. Let's just start off, and I want you to tell everybody a little bit about you and why special education is what you have found yourself in today. Okay. Well, I found myself um, when I was nine years old already wanting to be a teacher and I wanted to be a gen ed teacher. And then as I was going through school, I kept hearing, oh, you should be a special education teacher, not from external voices, but from an internal voice. And I kept thinking, oh, I I don't think that I would be good with special education students because I'd probably not hold them to high enough expectations or have high enough standards for them. And as I continued through my high school and my college career, um, I still kept hearing that voice. And shortly after um, I started college, I met and married my husband. We moved over to England and the uh, school that I worked in wanted to hire me to work with kids with special needs as a, as a teacher's aide. And Mm. I thought, Oh, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm an adventurous (laughs) person. 
So I said, okay, I'll give it a go. And I absolutely loved it. I found out that I could hold my students with special needs to the same standard, if not possibly even a higher standard than the gen ed teacher's aide was holding her students to. And so once we came back to the United States, um, I went back to college and I got my special education degree. And I realized that that internal voice that I was hearing was, um, I'm a very spiritual person and I very much believe in God. And I, I believe that that was his voice telling me, this is the path I want you on. And I'm very glad he didn't give up because I absolutely, truly love working with people with special needs. It's a true calling for sure. And uh, I think it takes a special person to be a teacher for one, because every kid's so unique. And then you add in a child that maybe has some limitations and you add on that uniqueness. Um, it's definitely something that's so, so special. And you've been doing it for 25 plus years. So I have now, not all of those have been as a teacher. A lot of those um, were as a teacher's aide or a substitute, but yeah, as a full-time teacher in special education, I've had about 17 years um, of that, but yeah, the rest of the time was all those other kinds of positions. And um, yeah, basically I've been in education since I turned five, you know, <laughs> either as a student for myself or as a, you know, student learning about others. And um, yeah, it's just, and, and thank so you for amazing. saying that, that it takes a special person to be a teacher. Um, I just want to shout out to all of my teacher friends right now with this remote learning stuff, because yes. um, I'm not unhappy that I'm not in the classroom <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, because it, 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 there's so much going on. And unfortunately, the special education population is definitely feeling this more so, I think, than the general education population. Um, but for all of my teachers, whether they're special education or general education teachers, this is, it definitely takes a special person right now. Absolutely. A lot of time, manpower, thought, and then to have to manage maybe remote and in-person learning, it's a lot. Hmm. Yeah, it's a lot for anybody. And for you, yeah. you do you do IEP consulting. And I checked out your website, and it is full of wonderful information. And we'll share how to find that later. But I thought you could talk about um, what an IEP is. Mm -hmm. And I'm I, I'm looking through your website. I can only imagine that for so many parents and maybe educators that forming an IEP can be such a daunting and overwhelming process. But I thought today maybe you could talk about what it is and how caregivers and school districts can work together in forming an IEP for your child. Yes. So an IEP stands for Individualized Education Program. And that is the document that drives the special education for a child who becomes eligible for the IEP. Um, the way that a person becomes eligible for the IEP, <clears throat> excuse me, is because of a federal law called IDEA or IDEA, um, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And that has 13, some, depending on if you break autism out as its own, 
14 um, separate Mm. eligibility categories. And so a child has to qualify under wonder one of those categories. Even if a child has a medical diagnosis of autism or ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, that does not automatically qualify the child to receive specially designed instruction per an IEP. So Mm -hmm. the school would have to do its own evaluations and assessments to determine if the child, um, and it's not even that, it's then, then there's a whole team of people that go over all those assessments and evaluations and they decide if the child really does need um, the special education or if they could possibly just have some accommodations and modifications. And if that was the case, then they could get what's called a section 504. Um, so there, there are a couple different documents, but yes, um, the, the IEP is the one that drives the actual specially designed instruction or special education of the student. And it is a daunting task. Um, there is a team of people and on every IEP team, the law requires a set number of, of minimum. Um, so at minimum, there has to be a general education teacher, a special education teacher, a district representative, and then um, possibly a school psychologist. But sometimes the school psychologist can be that um, district representative. If it's not a school psychologist, it has to be someone who's able to um, explain all the testing and all the assessment results. So at a minimum, you usually have three people, but you can have anywhere from up to, to I don't know, I think the largest meeting I've ever been, there were 17 people wow. with the parent. So IEP meetings, the very first one can be very, very daunting and scary because as I mentioned, you have those, those three, possibly four main people plus the parent, and then you could have a behavioral therapist, a speech therapist, an occupational therapist, a vision therapist, a um, physical therapist. You could have the teacher's aide. You could have, um, trying to think of, oh, uh, when they transition from grade school to high school or from one school building in a district to another school building, then you could have people from the building they're in as well as people from the building that they're going to. So um, that was the meeting where I had the most people was an eighth grade student going into a high school that was in a separate district. And we Mm -hmm. had representatives from our school, the separate district. And then we were also looking at placement to an outside district. So we had people from that institution as well. Wow. I had no idea I had no idea it was so detailed and there were so many people involved. Oh yeah. And when you're a parent and you go in there for the first time, it's, I've been told feeling like you're on a firing squad because oftentimes without thinking about how it feels to the parent, the school district personnel all sort of sit together in one area of the room or at the, of the table. And so they're kind of all 
clumped together and then you walk in, they're already there and in place. And then the parent walks in and here's all these quote unquote experts and professionals. And then you, Mm. and I've been told by many, many parents that it feels terribly uncomfortable that very first time. And because of those types of comments and because of all of the meetings that I attended myself and led as a special education teacher, I felt that when the Lord called me out of being a special education teacher full-time, that it was time to start working with the families and Mm. trying to make this process more comfortable. I'm not going to call it easy because it's never easy because in these meetings, we have to talk about your child's weaknesses. And so that's never easy to hear that your child is struggling in some area. So the meetings are never easy. Um, But I'm hoping that in teaching parents about the IEP, in teaching teachers to think about how they're placing themselves at the table, what the words are that they're saying. Um, I tried to do it just a couple minutes ago in this where I explained what IEP letters mean or what ADHD meant because every profession has their own acronyms. And while you're in that profession, you understand every acronym because you use that on a daily basis. Other people don't understand those things. So just trying to make sure all of that stuff is explained and that the parent who is legally an equal member of the team has a good understanding of all the information that was presented to them at these meetings. Absolutely. it's a, Even myself, the first time I went back with a parent to a meeting and I sat and I hate to use this term, but this is how we we say it is I sat on their side of the table. It wasn't even my child that was being talked about, but I was nervous and thought, oh, my gosh, I, I understand now a little bit of what the parents are talking about when they have said to me how overwhelming it can feel. So not only do I work with parents, but I work with school districts. So I work with everyone on the IEP team, like you said, to try to tackle this very daunting task of writing this legal document and make it a little bit more comfortable, a little less stressful, and help everybody hopefully understand each other's perspective and each other's wise and that that at the base of all of this is a child an individual child and we have to have our focus on that individual child Hmm. it's very true i'm sure it's it can be a very isolating experience for a parent if they didn't have somebody like you that that was there supporting them yeah i've i've definitely had parents tell me that. And when I've met some of my new clients through this business, um, in fact, I just had one the other day and she says, oh, you're such a breath of fresh air to talk to because when I talk to the school, they just don't understand what I'm saying and they just 
try to brush me off is how the parent felt. I'm not saying the school was trying to brush them off, but that's how, that's right. what the parent was perceiving. Sure. Absolutely. And it, with the IEP, once it's approved, is that something that has to be approved like every school year? Or is that something that once it's, it's made a, a legal document, it's for forward flow? I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Um, it, an IEP technically doesn't ever expire. Um, a person can become ineligible because of a varying amount of reasons. Um, usually it's not, I mean, you don't typically outgrow any sort of um, eligibility that would grant you the IEP, but maybe you've been able to accommodate yourself and learn tips and tricks that have helped you enough that you don't need the specially designed instruction anymore. So sure. people can become ineligible for the IEP. It, if you continue to be eligible for it, it is supposed to be gone over at least once every school year. And then every three years, they do another formal assessment where they go through a lot of the um, sort of outside testing. And by outside, I mean outside of the classroom. It's not their normal, whatever the teachers are doing with them in class. It's um, standardized tests that are given to anybody um, across the country so they can kind of compare the results and get those, <clears throat> excuse me, norm referenced results from around the United States. Um, I say it has to be gone over at least once a year because if, if there's any kind of question or if the, um, within the document, there are goals and objectives. And those goals and objectives are where the specially designed instruction plays. And so if a child, for whatever reason, things started to click for them in a particular area, and they really don't need to have a goal because they've already mastered that goal maybe three months into the school year, the parent or the school district can call an IEP meeting and say, you know what? your child has mastered this, they've reached whatever criteria was set in the goal, and we don't really feel like we need to keep data on this particular goal anymore. We'd like to take this out, and we'd like to maybe put in something else or just leave it out completely. Um, mm. If the parent feels at any time during the year that they are not having the services provided to their child the way they understood them, based on the IEP, they can call a meeting and have that group discussion of, okay, what's happening, what's not happening, you know, and just making sure everybody's on the same page or the child is nowhere near reaching those goals and objectives. And so they say, hey, can we, can we maybe alter these a little bit um, or can we completely take them out and change them? I mean, there's there's varying reasons why um, parents can call IEP meetings on a more regular basis than just once a year. It's great information to have, especially parents that maybe already have children that utilize it. Just to know what the options they have, I think, is empowering for parents and caregivers. Yes, I think so, too. And there's a lot of things that, again, I don't think the school does it on purpose, but when you, when you get an IEP, you also get your rights and responsibilities. They're called the procedural safeguards. And it's a packet of anywhere, depending on if it's front-sided or, or double-sided, 
from 10 to 20 pages. And it's pretty small print in order to get those 10 to 20 pages. And all of the information that I share with parents is in those procedural rights, but it's written in legal jargon (laughs) and it's written. I mean, like I said, it's a 10 to 20 page document. So most parents don't take the time to read all the way through that. And I mean, I, I wouldn't, to be honest. I mean, when I get, when I get a lease agreement for something, I, I don't read all the fine print. Um, especially when you've, the... yeah, especially when you've <laughs> had paragraphs of information you don't understand. It's like, oh, okay, well, sh- throw it in the back of the brain and disregard it. Right, exactly. So basically, you know, I just, I'm helping them understand and, and pull out the pieces of those procedural safeguards that are the most important. And then again, you know, just there's parts of the IEP that are very underutilized. And there are parts that are extremely important that parents just don't know about um, or don't know how to use them. It's like you're an advocate for not only the child, but the the caregiver as well, which in turn helps the child. Yes. Yes. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And I was checking out your website, which I, like I've said earlier, is tons of information. You've got a blog and Mm -hmm. I, I loved on your homepage of your website, you um, referenced a quote by Shakespeare. It was in Hamlet. And you said, uh-huh. Ophelia said, we know what we are, but we not, eh, but not what we may be. It's a tongue twister. Yeah. I'll say that again. <laughs> <laughs> we know what we are, but not what we may be. And this applies to all of us. And I believe the best illustration of this statement is the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. And as a member of a child's IEP team, we must always remember this as we write an IEP. And we must always remember the individual and the work to cooperatively work to write an IEP that meets the unique needs of the child while preparing that individual for further education, employment, and independent living. And I loved that paragraph because the whole focus is obviously the child and it's not just getting the child through maybe second, third, fourth grade, Mm -hmm. but to prepare them to feel empowered and to feel, you know, to feel like they're smart, hardworking and to prepare them for independent life. And I would imagine, I know the 25 years that you've been working, haven't been primarily as a, as a teacher, you've had many other job roles, but I would imagine that you've had special stories or special children that have touched you and molded you into the teacher you are today. And I didn't know Mm -hmm. if you had any of those special stories that you would be willing to share or any kind of moment that made you think like, oh my gosh, this has helped me understand the other individual and to be a better educator. Hmm. You just want one, huh? You're like, which one? Which one? I don't know. Oh gosh. Um, and I will try to tell just a couple, but yeah, there are countless um, moments in my career. Um, there, are, there are two students that really stand out. No, there's three. <laughs> no, there's four. No. <laughs> um, but I'm going to tell you two, two stories. There was um, one child who has Down syndrome and she's an adult now. Um, 
And she was one who was with me for many years. I had the great privilege in my teaching career to be with the same students um, from anywhere from two years to 10 years. So um, this particular student, I was told when she, when I'd had her for, I don't know, three or four years, maybe um, that I was wasting my time trying to teach her to read Hmm. that with her cognitive impairment, I needed to think about other things besides reading. And I thought, how can you tell a teacher not to teach reading no matter who the student is? So three, three or four years later, the student was reading on her own. And the moment that she read a sentence that she hadn't ever seen before. So I knew that she was reading on her own. I cried. I I whooped up and down. (laughs) (laughs) And the first opportunity that I had to take her to the person who told me she would never read, I absolutely took her. And I absolutely had her read a story. Mm. And the person still didn't believe that she was reading. She thought she had memorized all the words in this story. And when I say story, I'm talking, you know, a children's book, kind of like, you know, less words than even a cat in a hat type of book, but that, that kind of a book. And so this person would point at different words in the sentences or on the page and say, what does that word say? And my student could tell her what that word said. Mm. And if she had memorized the words in the order that they were, she wouldn't have been able to do that because when you memorize, you memorize like a sentence at a time. You don't memorize the individual word. Right. So the only way she could be doing that was if she actually was reading the individual word at that time. Um, Mm. So that was probably my, my all time favorite story. (laughs) It's pretty Um, amazing. Although I, it's, it's really so hard to say. Um, I have two of my former students today Um, who were both told you will never amount to anything. You will never go to college. You'll never get a driver's license. You'll never have a job. One of them is a senior in college Mm -hmm. and the other one is starting his freshman year in college. Wow. And they both drive. They both take care of themselves. They both have jobs. Um, They are productive members of society, which I think all parents try to raise their children to be. And I feel that as an educator, that is our job. We are not just working with them for them to get through the year that we have them or the two years that we have them. We truly are 
preparing them for life. Absolutely. And I think what's special about your stories is that it's so crazy to think somebody in the system gave a child limitations. And I think, I think as an educator, when I think back to teachers that have touched me back in grade school, they gave no limitations. You know, that's what they were there for was to, to be your biggest support. Right. And I think, I think that's what's special about you and about the stories that you have is that you were right there with a kid, like, let's show them. Well, we're going to read this book, you know, it's going to take a lot of time and patience and work, but we're going to do it. Yeah. And I, um, many times parents are hesitant to have their child get an IEP because then that's a label. And I totally understand that. Um, but I, and I can't speak for anybody else when I say this, but for me, when I would get a child for the first time, I didn't focus on academics at first, usually, because I had, I felt to build that child's self-esteem back up Mm -hmm. um, because they hadn't been successful in their academics or in their behavior um, where they literally had people telling them, excuse me, that they were not good enough or that they couldn't do something. And so I Mm -hmm. always told my parents, I don't just teach your child reading and math and English and social studies. I teach them that they are a person and they are a good person and that they have a lot of potential. And one of the things that I used to tell my students and I, I tutor today and I substitute as well, cause I just, I couldn't give up teaching completely <laughs> um, <laughs> is that all of us learn in a certain way. Um, a large majority of us, our path is a direct path from A to B. But for a child who learns differently, their path from A to B might take some side turns and might go around some corners. They might even come backwards to, to get to B, but they are going to get to B. It's just going to look different on their path there. And once I could get kids to, to understand that and believe that that was true, I had a much better impact with them. Absolutely. And talking about that, you had a blog that where you shared a, a, a personal experience. I think it was back in, um, you said geometry class. Mm-hmm. And the blog was so relatable and it, it comes back to that comment that you just made where you said um, you could figure out the problem in your head, but the teacher had wanted you to write down the steps and you had Mm -hmm. difficulty with that. And you described that instance as being so similar to a child's brain that learns differently. You gave so much effort and you cared and you wanted to please your parents and teachers, but you had such a hard time sharing how your brain processed all of that information And you said so many of these children, they want to please, they want to be like the kids who have it. They want to be smart. 
They wished their teachers would understand the amount of effort that they put into their schoolwork. And if they had been graded on their effort, they would have always gotten an A. And that story, I think, is so, it's something that we all can relate to. And we think of, when I read that story, I, I thought about, well, shoot, what about the child that experiences that on every level that they try right. and, and, and like they get that defeated feeling because they try and they, they want to do good, but they need to find somebody they can connect to, to, to allow them to learn at a level that, that they need to be. Right. Yeah. Um, and at the end of that story, I don't know, I kind of put a little PS on that blog. I don't know if you read that part, but um, I ran into that teacher a few years ago that had been my geometry teacher. And I told him that story because I figured he wasn't going to remember. And, and, uh, <laughs> and I told him, I said, you know, I, my grades earned me an F in that quarter, but you gave me a D minus because you told me you could tell that I was honestly getting these answers, but you couldn't see inside my brain to see what I was doing. And I couldn't verbalize what I was doing. And so you were nice and you gave me a D minus. And he says, I should have given you a B. And that just touched me so much that, you know, he was, I mean, my grades, because in a geometry class, there's formulas and there's measurements and there's all this stuff. And so he had, I mean, everyone has to show their work so he can see that it's being done and I wasn't cheating. Um, And so he was kind enough to understand that about me. Um, And, and that's, that was something that I didn't realize at the time would have such an impact on me. I mean, it was, I I knew when the quarter was over, I was upset. I told my parents, you know, I'm going to flunk this quarter. There's no way here's all my, you know, here's, they had seen my stuff anyway. And um, when the report card came out and it said it was a D minus, I was like, he, he gave that to me. I did not Mm -hmm. earn that. Um, But I did earn it. Right because I had put in so much effort just trying to figure out what my brain was doing. Um, and I've, and I've told some of my students over the years, you know, I think your brain is doing what mine did. It's going so fast that you can't break out the individual steps Mm. to show what's happening. And I, I just, I just really think that's what happened to me. Um, and I, I really do, and I know um, that my, my students, because they've, they've told me over the years, maybe not right in the moment that they were my student, but in their actions and in talking with them later, they want to be like everybody else. They don't want to struggle. They don't want that extra attention. They don't want to have to leave the classroom. They don't want to have accommodations because the other kids notice those things and they say something about it. Mm. So... When teachers tell me that a student isn't trying, or worse, when they use the word lazy about Mm -hmm. a student that I'm working with, I have a very, very difficult time staying calm because I know how hard that child is working, really. If we could just see inside the brain at the time that that was happening, 
it would be obvious to all of us. Absolutely. And you, on top of everything else that you do, (laughs) you've developed um, your own behavior modification program. And I guess I would like to know more about what behavior modification techniques are and how you developed your own program. Well, I was trained in several different programs throughout my career. Um, I worked with a behavioral specialist early on in my career, and then I was trained through the Crisis Prevention Institute. Um, And then there's a section of that called Nonviolent Crisis Intervention. I was also trained in Applied Behavioral Analysis, or ABA, and then um, Discrete Trial Trainings. And so I've basically taken what I know about kids and people, um, plus parts that I saw really connected to students over the years of all of those other programs, and just developed this very all-encompassing program. Um, I I had the name of it for a while, and I called it the three C's of behavior modification, caring consistent consequences, um, because that is very rudimentary in the program. Um, But I, I think I'm changing the name of it to lessons for a lifetime, because it it really does. And all the things that I teach in this, in this program can be used in all aspects of life. Um, So it's things like, you know, we are responsible for our actions. So there's a lot of programs out there that um, don't want to discipline or have any sort of negative connotation to kids misbehavior. Um, And I don't agree with that. So there are consequences, but you're also getting consequences for the things that you're doing right. And so often we don't even look at that part. When we Mm -hmm. think consequences, we automatically think something negative, but consequences are truly positive. Um, And so I try to make sure that there's a good balance of positive consequences and negative consequences and all behaviors are communicating something. Um, They could be communicating fear. They could be, um, earlier when I was telling you the stories of my students, you could probably hear in my voice that it was a little crackling. And if you had seen my face, you would have seen tears. Um, So that behavior would have told you that I was in a very emotional state and probably feeling several things, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. pride as well as you know, a little, a little hurt from my students, a little um, happiness for them, you know, kind of all mixed in. So that behavior communicated some of those emotions without me using words. And if a child is um, acting out in class, there are so many reasons that they could be acting out in class. So first we have to figure out what it is that is causing that behavior. Does the child feel that the material is too hard? Does the child feel that the material is too easy? Is the child hungry? Are they tired? Are they bored? Are they um, feeling defeated before they even start because they've had years of being told that they're not good enough? Um, Mm -hmm. Is it 
I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. I, I have a, a picture on my uh, Facebook page frequently where it's an iceberg and all you see of the iceberg is the top and that's the behavior. But then all the stuff that's underneath the surface, the, you know, the much, much deeper part of the iceberg are all the reasons that the behavior could be happening because of. So finding out, you know, is there, is there a problem at home? Is there, did you not get breakfast this morning? Is whatever. Um, I mean, there's just so many reasons. And then teaching them that their feelings about those things are valid, but we have to find appropriate and societal acceptable ways to display those feelings. So, um, you know, kicking and screaming is not acceptable for society. It's not conducive to running a classroom, but maybe they were hungry and they didn't know how to say they were hungry, so they kicked and screamed. Well, we can deal with being hungry. We can get you food, but then we need to teach you the next time you're hungry a better way when you have that feeling to express the communication behind that, be that behavior. Um, Absolutely. And then also, you know, just working on the self-esteem side of it. Um, and then if, if, you know, kids have meltdowns, there are um, certain ways before a behavior escalates things that can be included. Um, it's, it, it's scientifically proven that the more intense the behavior, the less rational the person is and the less able to think logically. Mm. So if both people are getting upset and you've got the adult yelling and spouting off, you know, whatever, and you've got the kid upset, then neither one of you are thinking rationally or logically. And so it's important that as the adult, we control our emotions during those episodes. And we also realize that those episodes aren't personal toward us as the outside person, whoever, whether that's mom, teacher, dad, grandma, neighbor, whatever, but it is personal to the person exhibiting the behaviors. Mm. So not taking it personally, staying calm, staying rational as much as possible. Um, and I mean, there's just, there's, there's a whole lot more to it. Um, but then if they're, if they've had a meltdown, once that meltdown is, is over and then the child is calm and rational again, or the person, I mean, this works with adults too. Um, then you talk to them at a time when the incident is not happening. And that's when you find out why the behavior happened. And that's when you teach what else can we do instead of the behavior that you had. Sure. Um, and then we, you know, we just work on, you are successful. You are good at this or that. Um, and talking about the positives. That's why the positive reinforcement is just as important, probably more important than having the consequences for the negative behavior. Um, Absolutely. So I could, I could talk more about that because it is, <laughs> it is a much more involved program, but that's kind of the gist of it. 
Well, it's a, it's a, it's a program that I think like, like you had mentioned before, it not only addresses the issue now and then, but it helps the child develop behaviors that will help them throughout life. Mm -hmm. And I think not just dealing with stressful situations in general, whether they seem super simple, I think in the way they respond, it, it makes them better able to handle situations in the future. Right. And oftentimes someone says something that they think is being helpful um, Mm -hmm. or they think is being encouraging, but person receiving it does not think that at all. Going back to the blog about my geometry days, um, I brought that to a story that happened to me recently. And my friend that was helping me or trying to help me was like, I just explain this in the simplest way possible. You understand this. Well, he meant that to be very encouraging, but it did not sound encouraging to me at all Mm. I took it as I've explained this the simplest way that there is you still don't understand (laughs) it so you must be dumb (laughs) yeah um and you know had had the words been okay I know that you can understand this let's just take a deep breath let's think about it I'll I'll stay with you you know I'll help you get this figured out my response would have been very different sure so being supportive even with our words and how things are said um, is a part of the program. Um, Because I do, I try not to, this isn't a program for the child. This is a program for the child and everyone in the child's circle. Mm. Absolutely. I think, I, I think it's amazing how two different brains can perceive the same conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. It's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, this, this, like I said, it definitely works, you know, with adults and with children um, and having boundaries. It's tough to have boundaries sometimes with our kids, but they need boundaries. That's what helps them feel safe and secure. Absolutely. Um, you know, and knowing that, okay, every time I do this, this is going to happen. Every time I do that, that's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, it's there, like I said, there's a whole lot more to this <laughs> program <laughs> um, that, that I'm happy to discuss and, and teach people. It's difficult to teach because it is so individualized um, because positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement is truly what is going to motivate the individual to continue with the behavior that we want and discontinue the behavior that we don't want. Sure. And I know you've talked a lot about um, cognitive bias Uh and I know a little bit about it and I'm sure reading about it, I'm sure it's something that we all do at some point in time, but how damaging is cognitive bias to special education and what can we do about changing that bias that's seen in special education? Well, so for your listeners, cognitive bias, everybody has them. And it isn't anything that you intentionally form. It's just that your brain goes through so much processing of information every given minute that it has to decide, is that important? Do I need to keep it? If so, where does it go? Nope, that's not important. Let's toss it out. 
And then it also tries to make connections when it's putting that information somewhere. So if, for example, you know, you've been in a state where they have hurricanes and you had a lot of storms and, and you had a hurricane come through once you were there. And then the next time it storms and the wind starts blowing and the trees start swaying, you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be another hurricane. I've got to start doing X, Y, and Z to prepare and blah, blah, blah. And then it just turned out that it was just a passing storm. So that's just one kind of bias where our brain goes, oh, okay, these weather conditions were the same as this. So I'm going to connect it to that. Hmm. And we do that with special education. We think, okay, I've dealt with this student who has a specific learning disability and they were, they, they were just difficult to work with. And so then the next time that teacher might get someone with a special, a specific learning disability, their brain connects that to the first person that they worked with who was difficult. And they assume that this child is going to be difficult. And that sets mm-hmm. their tone for how they deal with that child without ever giving the child the ability to show if they're going to be difficult or not. Right. So we have to catch ourselves in why we think the way that we think. Um, Because every person on the planet is unique and we need to figure out what that person's characteristics are. Yeah, they might have some that are similar to somebody else's, but how those characteristics manifest isn't probably going to be the same. Mm. Um, So that's from an individual standpoint. In general, society has a cognitive bias against people with special special needs because they either think um, if they can see the disability, and by that I mean if the if the person has some sort of outward physical thing, whether it's it's how they look or they have a prosthetic or you know they're walking with a cane because they're blind or um, you know something of that nature, then if they're in a wheelchair. This is a big one. If they're in a wheelchair, people automatically have this bias that that person is not as intellectual mm. with, without ever talking to that person. Wow. Um, and, and then if there's a, a disability like your autism, um, your attention deficit disorders, your um, specific learning disabilities, the ones that are what the Um, education world calls the invisible disabilities because you can't physically see anything about it people tend not to believe that you have a disability Mm. because they can't see it so they think you're making it up or you're just choosing to be that way or um if you're the student you know and one day like all cylinders are firing and everything works perfectly as every other student in the classroom and you can get the information and you can get the assignments done. And then for the next, you know, next day or however long, all that stuff isn't working the same anymore. And you can't, I've unfortunately heard many times, well, they could do it on this day. They're just choosing not to do it all the other days. Mm. (laughs) I can tell you there's nothing further from the truth. Um, Because as we mentioned before, no kid wants to make their teacher unhappy and wants to struggle 
and wants to be different and wants to stand out. Every kid that I've ever worked with would prefer to be quote unquote like everybody else. Sure. So in those biases, whether it's something that we, you know, why do we think that Gucci is a really good brand, but Cloverleaf is not such a great brand? Those mm. are where the biases come in. Is, oh, because, you know, Gucci is high priced and it's better, you know, whatever better means quality. And Cloverleaf is the Dollar General generic brand. That's not as good. Mm. You know, so why do we think that way? And it's not that all of our biases are wrong, but why maybe the reason that we have them can be changed. So we have to be, you know, if if we think, if we hear something and we just think the same way all the time, we have an immediate reaction, positive or negative, that's a bias. And we need to catch ourselves with those and think about those like, well, how did I come to that? And has that proven true? in every circumstance like that one Hmm. and then just Just, think about it and and make your own make your mind up as to do you want to hold on to that or do you want to change it so interesting things that we I wouldn't even necessarily think of being a bias but like you said until you step back and think well shoot why do I think that way Mm -hmm. this doesn't happen all the time right so wild it is. And so, you've talked to, to Heather Kreider and, you know, she, she can tell you all the actual science <laughs> behind all of that stuff. Um, I just find it extremely fascinating. And, um, and I know that, that it, it is a thing um, because I have done a little bit of research and understand a little bit of the science of it. Um, but yeah, how, how the brain works in general is incredible. I mean, and, and we still, I mean, there's so much of it that we haven't even tapped into (laughs) and and been able to understand all of the processes that happen. Absolutely. And then add in a, you know, an injury or disorder that complicates Mm -hmm. it even more. It's, it's ever so, ever so complicated. Oh yeah. Yeah. (sighs) So wild, but I know you are a busy woman, but I, I'd like to ask you a few, just a few more questions. And one of those okay. was, I know there's a lot of maybe caregivers or parents that maybe they're in the beginning or middle stages of an IEP process, or maybe they're struggling with um, a child that may be learning different. Do you have any words of wisdom or guidance for those parents or those caregivers or maybe those educators that are having, um, say, these struggles? reach out to somebody who has been down the walk before so that they're a support for you in the sense of it'll get better. You'll get through this. Um, It'll never be easy, but for teachers, it's okay that you're scared of having someone in your room that has special needs. They're still very, they're still a child first having whatever their special need is, is second. Be brave and courageous. I think the definition of courageous um, is being scared, but going ahead anyway. I found in my lifetime, because I honestly, that's the reason I didn't want to be a special education teacher 
growing up is because I was scared that I wouldn't live up to being a good teacher Mm -hmm. or that I would be shown to have flaws in my skills because I didn't know how to reach every child. We expect our students to do things all the time that they're scared of. As teachers, we need to reach, we need to push through the things that we're scared of too. So Mm. first and foremost, you know, accept the person as they are. Um, Same with the parents, accept your child where they're at and help them grow through special education if that's the appropriate path for them. If you are at the very beginning of this process and you don't know of anybody who's been through this process before, absolutely reach out to me. Um, And I think Leslie's gonna have ways to contact me later. Um, (laughs) But I can definitely walk this walk with you. Um, I can help you, you know, if you feel like your child is struggling, but you're not sure if they need to be evaluated for special education or not, we can talk about that. Um, if you're in the middle, if you've already had a couple of years of having your child have an IEP and you're just not comfortable that you really understand what that all means, reach out to me. Um, that's why I do what I do because I want to make this a process where everybody feels comfortable and confident that the child is getting the appropriate education to meet their unique needs for further education, employment, and independent living. And that I can't claim that I didn't come up with that. (laughs) That actually Mm -hmm. comes from the federal law, the purposes Mm -hmm. and findings section. Um, So, but that is, that is truly what we're, what we're supposed to be doing in special education. Mm. I love that. I think that's great great advice. And that was my next question is how can we find you, Shelly? I'm everywhere, Leslie. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like every day I'm adding a new place where I can be found. Um, Uh, I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on Facebook as uh, Shelly Kino IEP consultant. I'm on Instagram as Shelly Kino IEP. Um, LinkedIn, you can find me, just type in Shelly Kino and that's spelled S-H-E-L-L-E-Y, and Kino is K-E-N-O-W. And then um, I have recently started a YouTube channel. And again, just type in Shelly Kino IEP Consultant. Um, And I have been the last few weeks doing two different, um, I guess, I don't know what you call them exactly on YouTube, but um, on the channel, I have a thread on Tuesdays that's called hashtag no limits. And I have one on Fridays, that's Friday with Fran. Um, So we're doing these little weekly talks, basically. Um, The hashtag no limits is where I talk to people who society society has put limits on in some way, shape or form and how that person is busting through those limits. Um, And then Friday with Fran, Fran is a mom of two children with special needs, well, I'm sorry, two adults, with special needs. And um, she herself became a person with a special need a couple of years ago after some medical things happened. And um, so we just talk about 
things with special education. Um, hot topics, not so hot topics, understanding the IEP, um, those sorts of things. And then lastly, I have my website, which is shellykino.com. Um, and there you'll find the blog. And then you can also find my services. Um, I've, I've changed the website a little bit since Leslie took the quote. It's not on the front page anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's still there uh, because I do very much believe that we know who we are today, but not one of us in a positive or a negative way knows what we will be tomorrow. We're all one breath away from some being something else. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And like Shelly said, she has a ton of information. If you're just wanting to browse, her blog is phenomenal. It has many pertinent topics. Um, I just think for parents in general, there's a lot of really good topics. And I have seen a few of the No Limit videos. I think you've posted them on Facebook. Uh Also very good as well. So a ton of information that Shelly has to offer. And maybe we can have Shelly back on another time and she can talk more about the difference between homeschooling and remote learning and how that affects special special education. Cause I know she still has a ton of information to share. <laughs> I do. We could talk all day and I still wouldn't be talked out. So <laughs> ah, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. Well, Shelly, thank you so much for sharing your, your knowledge and your passion. And yeah, I thank think you for having me. I, these are topics that I have wanted to know more about, but I've never I've never personally known anybody that's worked in that sector of education. And I think so many people listening today, whether they have a personal connection or maybe they're just wanting to be less biased in what they do every day. I think you have Mm -hmm. given us a lot of, a lot of information to, to take away. So thank you. Absolutely. You're very welcome. And again, thank you for having me. I, I could talk all day. (laughs) Anytime. Well, Shelly, you have a great rest of your day and we'll be in touch. Great. Thanks, Leslie. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.